0: Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast, the show about all that's new and neat with Clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. You can support the ongoing production of this independently produced program by donating to our Patreon at clarinet.com support. Supporters get early access to extended ad-free podcasts and exclusive access to patron-only episodes and live events. And now for today's episode of the podcast, episode 101, Building a
1: Profitable Career with Guest Stephen P. Brown. I've managed to actually help people transform their lifestyle by transforming their approach. There's more to music than music. Two-time Global
0: Music Awards winner Stephen P. Brown helps musicians ignite their passion and find the confidence to unleash spectacular performances. Conductor of orchestras, choirs, concert bands and musical theatre, he also regularly composes and founded the Concert University. We discuss all elements of financial wellness for musicians, including how to decide what to charge for gigs and why you're probably not charging what you're actually worth. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started today that music, money, and opinions cross paths repeatedly throughout today's conversation. Now, I find this to be extremely valuable, and I hope that you do too, but if you're the kind of person who doesn't enjoy this type of conversation or who finds this issue extremely contentious, today's episode may not be for you. That's okay, because I hope that many, many people from all around the world will find an incredible amount of value, and I hope that you'll integrate financial wellness as part of your musical and artistic planning in the future. Today's episode was brought to you by the generous support of the following sponsors. Chamber Music Northwest is hosting an international clarinet celebration and competition from June 24th to 30th in Portland, Oregon. You can compete to win over $20,000 in prizes in the Young Artist Competition, take part in clarinet ensembles, masterclasses, and clarinet mentor amateur workshops, and enjoy concerts by world-class artists including Carata Giuffredi and Jose Frank Biester. Deadline for the Young Artist Competition is January 15th, and clarinetists aged 30 or younger may apply. Passes to the clarinet celebration are on sale now, and you can learn more at cmnw.org. D'Addario Woodwinds has an exciting new weekly trivia show called Don't Blow It. You can check it out every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on their Instagram channel. And if you know the right answers to the questions, you might even have the chance to win some amazing new gear. By the way, if you haven't had a chance to try D'Addario's new reserve clarinet reeds, you're in for a real treat. They're using some really amazing new technology and manufacturing techniques that are helping achieve super consistent results. You can pick up a box at your local music store or head to clarinet.com slash reads to buy a box right now. So I'm here today with Stephen P. Brown. Thank you so much, Stephen, for coming on the podcast.
1: Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. I, I love what you guys are doing and, and I love your, your podcast, Sean. It's, it's been around for quite some time and I've seen it many times, so I'm thrilled to actually get invited. Thank you.
0: Oh, well, that's interesting. I had no idea you'd actually uh, heard of it before. Where'd you first see it? Uh, it's, it's probably Facebook or LinkedIn or somewhere. Yeah, it tends to pop up on Facebook a lot. So it's it's, it's interesting the reach I have sometimes. I don't realize all the people who are out there who are listening or, or who've seen it. Um, interestingly, I, I didn't know this when I first encountered your uh, Concert University training series and some of the great work you're doing trying to get musicians to boost their careers. But you're actually also a clarinetist. So if you don't mind, would you explain how you went from, you know, clarinetist and conductor to helping musicians sort of find their path?
1: Oh, sure. Well, I started out on piano and then went to clarinet and then was thrust the bass clarinet in my hands, which I absolutely fell in love with, Um, but then ended up on percussion. And then, of course, you know, what do you do with a bad percussionist? You take one of the six away and put them in the front of the orchestra. So (laughs) I ended up conducting, but. The thing is, my career started out wonderfully. I really had a terrific career when I was young. I was conducting the London Philharmonic, and I was working with the Halle Orchestra, the BBC Philharmonic. And then literally overnight, I became too old to be a young conductor. What age is that, that people are considered too old? Because I'm probably getting there myself. Or- that was actually early 20s. Oh, wow. Long ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I was no young, longer England's up and coming young conductor. I was, I was now just thrusting the same pool of talent as everybody else, including Mark Elder and Bernstein and Carrie Schulte. They were all still alive at the time. So, who the heck is Stephen B. Brown? So, my career disappeared overnight. And, and I had to just figure out if I was going to conduct, I had to do my own thing. You know, you had to put on concerts. You've got to hire musicians. And and it was so expensive. I lost a ton of money and I made a ton of mistakes. Um, so, and, and of course, it started working after a while. And people were asking me, well, how come you're putting on your own concerts? How how are you doing it? So I started helping them and coaching them. And that was some 20-odd years ago or so. Um, so now I, I just want to help other people not reinvent the wheel. And of course, reinventing the wheel works both ways with mistakes as well as successes. You know, there's no reason for you to make the same mistakes I did or my students have. The, the type of person who is succeeds is the one who keeps trying. What was it that kept you
0: going when your career evaporated overnight like that? I mean, a lesser person would have just thrown in the towel.
1: Um, You know what? I think once you've got the conducting bug, it's there. Um, One of my friends who I grew up with, I really admired his violin playing. He was with the CBSO for 22 years in the second violin section and now is a full-time global international conductor because... Andres Nelson's went to the CBSO. He wanted to go into the hall, listen to the orchestra, gave Mike the baton, and from that point, Mike was hooked. So I I got that bug at a very, very young age. I think I was about seven or eight years old when my parents took me to the local community orchestra. And I was leaning on the balcony the whole time, just watching and listening. Didn't say a word. I'm, I'm really, internally, I'm actually quite an introvert. Didn't say anything. And then eventually, Mum got me to say, you know what did you like about it and apparently my response was literally i want to do what the guy in front was doing and how old were you there seven or eight so i've always wanted to be a conductor my first gig i was 16 my first professional gig i was 19 when i was in front of a big symphony orchestra um so it's always been there wanting to be a conductor wow that's amazing it's funny how sometimes looking back we actually find the path forward yeah. And, and, you know, I've tried other things. I even deliberately came out of music for a while because I wanted to see, you know, in the uh, mid 90s, late 80s, there was all this talk about audiences shrinking and gray hairs, all this kind of stuff. Eventually, I just figured out, you know what, why are people who live out there not going to concerts? What do what their lives look like? So I went into small business. I went and worked for someone who owned his own business. And I even worked for a corporate USA for a little bit because I just literally wanted to find out what quote, real life was like. I learned a whole new language. I I learned a a whole different approach of expectations and, and, you know, just how to relate to people who have no relationship with classical music whatsoever. Like most of us, most performers, I was absolutely surrounded by this very opaque bubble of other classical music fans. So this experience with business that you had, um,
0: how did that end up leading to your concert university program, which you now have featured online.
1: Helping people with their performing careers for a couple of decades now and taking all this business management experience and, and learning how to speak to people and what they're looking for in the world. I've, I've managed to actually help people transform their lifestyle by transforming their approach. Now, if you think about it, we've all spent, as I just said, 15 odd years or so in a practice room performing for people who are there to critique us. So, so we're chasing this thing called perfection and we don't learn how to communicate verbally. We don't learn how to communicate with people outside of our sphere. So Concert University brings all of that together and says, look, this is what the real world are actually looking for and we can make the, the world a better place to live for everyone through music by doing it this way. Now, I, I don't prescribe, I don't dictate, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not a lawyer, um, but these are things that are working for people in the Western world today. I think what's so important about your program, too, is you
0: do, you're very upfront about the fact that this is how a classical musician can make an income. You're not supporting people starting a side business or anything like that. Um, but what do you say to the musicians who have been brought up in this sort of, in my opinion, it's a very... Very sad place in our society where where the arts are seen as being necessary to be alongside some sort of turmoil or, you know, I don't care about (laughs) money. I just want to make great music kind of thing. You know, what do you say
1: to that? You know, the bohemian image of the starving artist was a trend from the late 19th century. And they were all rich boys who were rebelling against the wealth and the aristocracy we we forget that whereas that's where all that came from these these guys were rich so they were rebelling against their, their family's wealth they went off to do whatever and to starve and, and do all this thing called the A 150 years later we're still subscribing to that although we're not the rich folk we don't have a, a backup plan we can't go home to daddy who will save us you know so we we've got this thing where we've made the art form the ultimate and my you know it's interesting my mantra for a couple of decades now has been there's more to music than music you know when i started learning in in college when i went to college trinity college of music i just heard all the time just focus on the music it's all about the music you know whatever's on the page whatever the composer wanted that's what it's all about you know what there's a heck of a lot more to music than that we're dealing with moments we're dealing with a language of emotions we're communicating that's what music is it is not turning printed notes into sound that's just the first step and i think we've we've started chasing so much the perfection of Whatever that is, it's like trying to create the, the perfect sentence in a language, crossing the T's the right amount of width, getting the dot above the I, the correct distance, making sure the letters are formed right, that the, the grammar is perfect. And, and while we're focusing on all of that, getting all of that perfect, we've actually forgotten the sentence is actually trying to say something There's a meaning behind it. And it's the same in music. We're focusing so much on the technical stuff. Here's a perfect example. Clapping between movements. It's considered faux pas, right? You don't do it, apparently. Do you know how old that tradition is? Not as old as we would think. Less than 100 years. Do you know where it came from? I don't, actually. Toscanini. He was doing his NBC radio orchestra broadcasts, you know, and and rehearsing them, and the programs kept running over. They kept being late and and running over time. And he absolutely insisted that the music was the same speed, it was the right tempo, they'd rehearsed it and timed it. They figured out it was the applause between the movements. So he cut it out the programs were on time, he liked the silence, so he brought it into Carnegie Hall, and that's where the tradition spread. Now we get purists saying, oh, when you listen to Mahler or Beethoven, there's and Tchaikovsky, I mean, Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony, the first movement, how on earth can anyone stay silent after that? It's just unreal to me. But we've got this thing where you say, it's going to spoil the, the, the whole picture and the, and the flow of the movements and the keys and all that kind. None of these composers before 1930 ever expected an audience to be quiet particularly between movements beethoven's concerts were three or four hours long he would do two moments of a new symphony he would do a song cycle he would do an entire piano concerto and then finish with the other two movements of the symphony he'd just written no one sat there for four hours they wandered in and out they were chatting they were eating drinking and yet now we get into that whole thing of being perfect and whatever else. And this was before amplification was even a thing. Like I've
0: heard that as an argument before, like, oh, you can drink or chat at a rock concert because it's so loud, but you can't do that at a classical music show because you'd drown out the music, <laughs> you know? Even jazz, like this is not common in jazz. Could you imagine a jazz club just sitting there in
1: complete silence the entire night? We, uh, yeah, no, I can't. And, and there's a, a wonderful piece by Fora, the Mask and Burger Mask suite. Um, there's a gavotte in there. And ev- and most people play it, most recordings are out there going dun dun da dum bum, bum and it's very nice and dainty and jolly. You know what? It was a raucous dance. It was beer drinking, it was slapping, it was it was a loud thing. So there's a lot of the classical music and the way we play it these days is actually not what was intended. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, I'm a big fan of a band called Radiohead. In fact, I have a second
0: uh, podcast all about that as well. <laughs> oh, wow. OK. Um, but I recently went to one of their concerts this summer. And one of the things I find most compelling about their music that I think and I wish that classical musicians would bring to their music as well is now that we have this genre of recorded music, sometimes when it's played live, It needs to be different. So, for example, Radiohead has an album called Kid A and all the tracks on there are very cerebral and very produced, but they have completely different versions of these songs they play live. They're faster tempos. They have short sections of improvisation. Um, They're really, really exciting. And it it turns some of the songs just completely on their head. Um, Do you think that would help reinvigorate classical music Is treating the live venue as a
1: different experience than the album? absolutely you definitely need to the, the the problem with recordings is well in fact music let's take music itself it is a language of emotions ravi zacharias calls it language of the soul so we're communicating something whatever it is um and you know if if we could actually put words into put music into words if we could describe it then we would and we wouldn't actually need music so we're we're dealing with a moment and you might be able to record it Like visual art, you can see visual art, you can take a picture, you can reproduce it and send it out, but it's still not the real thing. Same with music, you're dealing with a moment. You cannot reproduce that moment. So when you're talking about the language of emotion, you're communicating this emotion, you're getting that cross, it will never exist again. Now on a recording, you have a representation of what that moment was, but like amplification, you're no longer listening or feeling the instruments or the voice. You're now listening to speakers which is a completely different experience. So yeah, totally treat recordings differently than the live. So those of you listening might be wondering, well, how on earth does this
0: relate to earning a better income as a musician? But one of the core uh, components of your free masterclass, which I'm going to link to in the show notes, is you talk a lot about creating experience and why would someone want to listen to you? So these are really the things you need to be thinking about. and, And what else would you elaborate on as far as that concept?
1: You know, one of the examples I often give is playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star in a recital. And people laugh at me all the time. I'm thinking, well, why? Because it's and, – and students have actually tried to catch me out on this. They've programmed it. And then they call me up the same day saying it was the best piece on the program. Because it is something nostalgic. It's something familiar, something that people recognize they can humble on to in their heads, if not out loud. But nobody can play it the way you can play it. So you're going to bring your own thing to even a simple nursery rhyme. doesn't matter if it's on clarinet, piano, percussion, whatever it is. You're still going, nobody, nobody can play the way you do. And that is what makes it special. Whatever emotions that you're trying to get across. And one of the big things that I do talk about um, with my students is intention. What is the outcome that you're going to deliver to the audience that they can take home with them? We often get very self-serving. We're performing because we like it. We're performing because we've spent 15 years and hundreds of thousands of dollars on education. We're performing because we know what we're doing, we like it, and therefore we deserve it. That doesn't help anybody. That's not communicating music. So flip it on its head. What is the intention? What do you want the audience to get out of this? What are they actually paying for? If you think about it, when you do actually spend your money on something, You're buying something that will make your life better, easier, uh, fuel you, impact you deeply, do things you can't do, don't want to do. I mean, this is why you have restaurants, so you don't have to cook. So I get my hunger satisfied by paying somebody else. As a musician, how do you make someone's life better? Why would they pay you? It's so funny you mentioned the restaurant because I actually
0: worked in a restaurant, um, interestingly enough, to pay for going to my first Radiohead show in 2008 when I was in college. (laughs) Um, But uh, when I was there, I realized something really strange because I came in and I was working just as a line cook. It was a pretty low end job, but I saw them just bringing in basically groceries they'd purchased from the local grocery store and I, it may be a stupid thought, but I always thought that restaurants generally use different sources. And it was it was that moment that I realized that the customers weren't coming there for different food. Of course, it's the same lettuce you buy at your local Safeway, um, but it's the preparation techniques, the, the 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 atmosphere, the environment, the service. It's nothing about the the food before it's cooked. You know, absolutely the same recipes, even. Yeah, yeah. If you want something simple, you can just cook it at home. But you might want that nine hundred degree oven fired pizza or whatever. Um, you can't do that in your own kitchen.
1: Yeah. We all buy things. We all spend our own money on things that make our life better somehow. So, you know, if we approach sharing, making the world a better place by sharing live music with that approach, how am I making these people's lives better? Then you've got a greater chance of them. Number one, being thrilled that they paid you. Number two, actually wanting to pay you more when you ask for it. And number three, come back. So you you make me think of a really interesting thing too. And I want to play devil's advocate
0: for a second. Um, So let's say we spend some time analyzing and thinking about what the audience might want, actually want to consume and what they might pay for to listen to. Um,
1: Are we not undermining the art itself? Not at all. That is what we do as performers. The art form is communicating an emotion of some kind. Now, The fact that the audience may not know what that emotion is, they may not know they have access to that emotion, or even worse, they may have buried that emotion and not dealt with something in their lives that that is associated with a specific kind of emotion. So everyone is going to have a different, very personal reaction. But as a performer, when you're walking out on stage, there really needs to be some very deliberate intention of this is what i'm going to deliver whatever outcome it is for you as an individual and we get really really very specific you know when when i do coach people we i drill them down we use our imagination we we dig real deep what is it that you actually are trying to help people how do you make their lives better that is the art the fact that we're using a language of emotions that we call music That's just the language we are experts in. You can still say the same thing in French as you can in German or English or even American, dare I say it. So, so, you know, you can say the same thing. You can get the same message across, but you're using a different language. In our case, we're using the language of music. You know what? You're
0: so right. And sometimes with music, I like to always put the situation that I'm facing into another career. So while we're on the cooking trend, could you imagine a chef who never left his own personal kitchen, only cooked for himself, and just never shared that with a restaurant or never had a cooking
1: recipe book or anything, would we really call him a chef? Probably not. (laughs) You're absolutely right, Sean. And don't forget also that you don't go to a restaurant to watch that chef cook his meal. That's not why you're there. Yes, that's nice. Yes, it's awesome. Yes, you get associated and you get an expert, an utter expert preparing your meal for you, but you're not there for that. You're there because you're hungry and you want to be fed.
0: Let's talk a little bit about one of the key things that um, today I wanted to discuss, which was earning potential and how do you not only calculate what you should charge for your performances and, and gigs, but why that's important and how you can just deal with the whole situation.
1: The bottom line is the industry as a whole, particularly the recording industry, has devalued music and has converted it into entertainment. So we now have access to tons and tons and tons of free recordings, free resources. Um, People do not expect to pay for music anymore. Now, we've already discussed the difference between a live um, performance and a recording. It cannot be – they're they're just apples and oranges. They're completely different things. Um, As far as earning money is concerned, we, we kind of need to get people back into valuing the expertise that we have as performers because we deal with emotions, because we deal with the inner things that people a lot of people don't want to talk about. Um, Even those in the industry, even those who do study this in detail, they don't want to admit, they don't want to go down that road of that this is something very personal and yet that's exactly what it is. So get it off of entertainment, get it back to this language of emotions that's when people will value it. That's when they will pay for it because it means something to them. You're actually delivering an outcome that is relevant to their lives. So, how do you calculate fees for that? Well, first of all, always charge a high fee. You know, this is something that, that I share quite often. Um, I, I do trainings and webinars quite often because there are a lot of people out there and we're all working different things, different times. And therefore, we don't always have the same availability. If I did a webinar once a week, I, you know, I'd only get 10 people coming in and and experiencing a life-changing training. I've got to do it more frequently than that because we all are busy. We all have different times. But what I do say in there quite often is charge a high fee. Get people used to paying for something of value. Get them used to realizing that this restaurant is a wonderful experience. It's the whole package, as you were just saying, Sean. It's not just the food being cooked. As long as we look at music as the equivalent of the ingredients in food, we're lost. You might as well go to McDonald's. You, know, you might as well just go, and, go on YouTube and watch Brooklyn's Full Symphony. You know, because that's what you're equating it to. If you now take the whole experience of the restaurant, the chef, the environment, the background music that they have there, UGG, and all the other stuff, the environment, that's what we're talking about as in a live performance. That's the musical experience.
0: So when you say a high fee, are we going to try to build that from some sort of, you know, calculate expenses and then add a certain percentage or just how do you how do you frame that?
1: Um, I just (laughs) I help people figure out what to them is important. Once we've figured out what's important, then we can actually put a price on it. Once you have a price on it, then you can figure out how realistic it is. Once you have figured out how realistic it is, then that's the amount of money which um, you should aim to perform for every single time. And and I I literally mean every single time. And, and yeah, that might mean you start turning down gigs. So one of the things that I find interesting about this, because I, I went through this a few years ago when I was
0: trying to first start freelancing, I started charging or I started accepting a lot of stuff that looking back, it didn't really work. And you mentioned in your webinar too that you can almost be paying to play or you literally can be paying to play. And I, I did the math one day I sat down and I was like, okay, so let's say I can play or teach cause I also teach, but, um, let's say I can do a hundred workshops a year and each of them pays me a hundred dollars and it's a one hour workshop. That seems pretty great, you know, but my liability insurance might be 200 bucks for the year. That's $2 per gig. My instrument repairs might be $500 for the year or maintenance. That's now $5 per gig. I've already deducted $7. We're now at 93. The government's going to take half of whatever that ends up being, in the, you know, in taxes. So by the time you get down to it, you're not really making much more than your local um, convenience store type job
1: as a fresh music graduate. And it's amazing if you actually consider it that way. It's scary, in fact, because, you know, we, we see these big numbers because we've got, there is so much competition out there. Fifty thousand uh, music majors graduating in the U.S. every year. That's a lot of competition. So we, we do think that, oh my goodness, they're paying a hundred bucks. Yay, yippee, I can pay my rent. Well, as you just went through, no, you can't actually. Um, and you might actually end up paying out in order to be there. So we do have to figure out what is important to you. The trick that I share with people is to actually replicate. A lot of people, they trade their time for money. Now time is probably the one asset we all have of equal measure um, and of equal value. You're not going to get any more time in your life. It, it exists. That's it. So, you've got to maximize what it is. So, what I tend to suggest is that you know what? It's okay if you repeat the program for a different audience. Then you're starting to reduce the amount of time of preparation, all that kind of stuff. Those folk out there who insist on playing a completely different program every single time they perform, well, good for you. You know, I'm glad that, that you have that challenge for yourself. You're not really helping anyone else. Uh, that's all very selfish motives. Well, and the same thing goes for, we're talking about expenses. I mean, it, time is finite, like
0: you just said. And let's say you get a wedding gig. Let's say it pays, I'm just picking odd numbers here. I have no idea what these things pay around the world in different cities. So here we go. But let's say someone pays you 500 bucks to play at their wedding for 20 minutes. You think it's fantastic, but you're going to have to arrange that music all from scratch with over 20 hours of your time. The wedding's, you know, maybe an hour and a half drive out of town. Like it's, it starts to look pretty dismal.
1: Well, it's okay if you then plan to book 100 weddings. <laughs> and who wants to play 100 weddings of the same arrangements, the same music all the time? Um, there may be people who are quite okay with doing that. There are plenty of people who will get fed up after the first 10. And in which case, yeah, it's been a complete waste. One of the smartest things someone ever said to me, and this person was
0: actually a uh, some sort of physicist or something, so it makes sense. But I remember in university, um, there was a party we were at, and he was only going to have like a beer. And I was like, come on, what are you doing? Have a, we're having a party. Like have another drink, man, you know, (laughs) pure pressure. And uh, he said something which was so smart. He said, look, I've been hungover in the past. And I decided that I wouldn't do that again because if you had to live the experience in reverse, you would never do it. And I look at, this sounds ridiculous, but I actually look at gigs that way too. If someone was going to deduct all the expenses at the beginning
1: and then pay me, would I still accept the gig? There you go. That works. And then let's marry that in with how do you actually come up with um, the rate or what gigs to accept? Well, if for a particular gig you're getting 500 bucks, that is very nice for most people, particularly if it's just for one hour's work. Now somebody else comes along and they're doing all the organizing, they're getting the audience in, um, the music's already done, all you have to do, you know the repertoire already. You don't even have to do anything. Just practice a little bit and then turn up on the day, but they're going to offer you 200. Well, OK, if you can take 500 and repeat that 10 times, why would you interrupt that sequence with one gig that's 200?
0: So what do you do, though, if someone else comes along and, and offers to do the same gig for less?
1: Let them do it because you don't want to be the now this is a huge point you just touched on, Sean. You don't want to be the one with the reputation for being a cheap artist. Yeah, that's true. And that's what happens when you take on the free gigs. Now, there are always going to be exceptions, all right? You you know, don't have to write in and tell me, I got a free, you know, a gig out of a free gig. The majority rule is, (laughs) the most experience that most people have is when you do a free gig, it means that that person, that person who booked you, knows that you will perform for free again. That is not a reputation you want to get.
0: Yeah. You know, I I have a story about that. I had a friend who... um. He got an email asking to be played at some church and it was a volunteer thing. He just said to me, look, I really want to play this. I'd rather play the gig than do my teaching for that night, but it doesn't pay. And I said, well, why don't you just write back and say that sounds great. You would normally charge X amount for this gig. And he did that. And to his amazement, they cut him a check. (laughs) They just said, oh, sorry, I wasn't aware that you, uh, you know, weren't um, a community player. If you're a professional. Yeah, sure. Here's the payment. (laughs) He was shocked.
1: Absolutely. It, yeah, and that's exactly what happens. When you elevate yourself, then you elevate the, the whole profession. People get used to it and, and they're fine. Most people are fine with that. I had one um, guy who went through the coaching program. He was invited to conduct a concert, so he did fine. He was a pianist, but he was invited to conduct a concert, um, and included in that was playing the piano part in a solo concerto. Well, you know what? I'm already conducting the concert. I'm really excited by this. I want to do this. So go right ahead. I'm like, dude, come on. You're giving them two services. That's a lot of extra work. It is a lot of extra work. So you need to go back and ask them to pay you a fee. So a week later, he called me up and said, Steve and I went back to the board and I said, 'Um, I'm very happy to do the concert. I will provide the piano solo part for you. It's going to cost you an extra $2,000. And they were like, oh, okay. Um, Sure. Thank you very much. We will figure out how to do that. Well, so what about
0: charity gigs? Like a lot of musicians get called and you know they want to come and play for free and uh, it, you feel bad because
1: it's a charity, right? No, not at all. Um, every single thing in that charity gig, if you're playing for a charity, you are playing at an event. So that event has expenses. They hired the hall, they hired the caterers, they got the programs printed. They, whatever it is that they're doing, there were expenses. Why is music not an expense? I never understand that. So go ahead and charge them. Now, if you want to donate to that charity because you do support them, then go ahead, donate, make a donation. And this is why when you provide a service, you get paid. You can deduct your expenses from that, blah, 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 blah. You end up with a few hundred bucks in your back pocket. If you want to donate those few hundred dollars back to the charity, now you can deduct that donation from your taxes, from your income, from your taxes. Whereas if you play for free, there is no deduction for the time, the expense, the gas, all the regular expenses involved with with doing a gig. You cannot deduct. It doesn't exist. So how
0: would that conversation look? They call you up. They ask you to play for free. You say, you know, look, I don't play for free, but let's say you pay me $500. I'll make a $500 donation back to your charity. I mean, I wouldn't start with that, but if that's the only way you can do it, it's a great deduction.
1: Well the first thing is that that you never say no. You know, it, as as a performer and and this is something that I think here you, this series is touching on a little bit it's the business side of things. You always want to be the solution provider. You always want to say yes and be enthusiastic about it. Yes, absolutely I would love to do that. That is awesome. This is how we can make it happen. It's going to cost you 500 bucks. But you know what, I really, really love what you do, so I'm, I will donate that back to you. So if, if I come and perform for you for 500, 500 bucks, um, that's fine, great, wonderful, and then because I love what you do, I will actually make a donation as well, how about that? And if they're not interested, then they're not interested, and that's, that's their problem, not yours. But again, we go back to the valuing of music, and I wonder if
0: the, uh, you know, the caterers and the venue would even consider doing a similar thing. I, I highly
1: doubt it. And if they did, they would get so much advertising yeah. Yeah. There's so much exposure. <laughs> yep. You know, thank you for our sponsors, the uh, Chick-fil-A or whoever it is who gave us all our food today. We really appreciate them. Their logos on every piece of paper that's are associated with that event. So if you're going to be a musician and you're going to perform for free, get the sponsor. You, you are sponsoring that event. Get your logo, get your name, get your picture out there on every piece of paper. Get a thank you from the stage. That's true. Yeah. Too many times a musician goes totally unthanked
0: or even unrecognized at those kind of events. And, you know, I, I have said in the past to people, too, when they call me, I say, oh, you know, I, I, thanks for calling. I really appreciate the call. But uh, you know, I just want to ask, you know, is the venue being donated and also the food and everything else? Because if that's the case, then I would be happy to come play for free. But if not, then, I, you know, basically what you just said, this is part of your production expense. And if it's not
1: there, I can't come. One of the biggest problems, Sean, that we have as classical musicians, as I hinted at this earlier, we don't know how to talk to people who are not musicians. And most of our conversations are about us. They're from our perspective. In all honesty, as soon as you make the conversation about you, you've lost them. And and all you need to do is to do it, flip the approach and make it about them and how you can how they can solve their problems. Even if you part ways um this out of all the interviews that I do or all the discussions that I have of people who want to get my coaching um there's probably less than a third who I actually invite into my program i mean i mean even those who i don't i'm still on the phone i still keep I, i've already decided and we've already agreed that this is not going to be the right thing for them but you know what we are going to stay in touch we keep talking for another 5 10 15 20 minutes half an hour figuring out what can they do because The whole purpose of my webinar training and my coaching is to help them accomplish what they want to achieve. If you adopt that approach, you'll help the charity accomplish what it is trying to achieve. That's all they care about. That's all they want to hear about. Make all your conversations about that. Help them. When that happens, you may not do the gig, but you're going to be the darn first person they call next time they have something. How can we break down
0: this wall between music itself and the business side and economics? Um, Basically, I feel like whenever money and music touches, musicians get
1: antsy. Well, sure, because they don't know what that means. Higher education was never designed to be vocational. It helps us improve our skills so that the skill of the the task, the environment, the instrument, whatever, is improved in general, and it helps us do research. That's what higher education exists for, it's what it was invented for six, 700 years ago, whatever it was. It is not designed, and probably never will be, to show us how to live a life, and how to survive, and how to do music business. Now, I've taken music business courses in universities, entrepreneurship, all that kind of stuff, it's all still theory, textbooks, and ways of how we can do this. They're experimenting, they're researching these are not the hard and fast rules of the real world so musicians generally have been stuck in that environment and have no one's ever showed them how to earn a buck how to talk to somebody else about okay yes i can help you with this i can provide as a solutions provider yes i can provide live music for your event it's going to be absolutely awesome it's going to cost you thousand dollars you know it's, it's that simple but because we haven't done it we're nervous we panic we make it very personal. We think they're buying us. They, we, we don't realize they're buying a service or music. And you know,
0: that's another good point you raise. Is like if you're going to charge $1,000 and you're going to tell them it's going to be great, it had better be great. You've actually got to first be a great player and a great musician. It's like anything. It's a prerequisite now. If you hired the chef for your wedding and the food was terrible, I mean,
1: it's simply not okay. Yeah, your reputation is shot. But it's very interesting because... One of the the things, and and people who go through the Concert University program realize this, and it's fascinating watching their journey and their perspectives change and how they can actually sustain a career long-term using the system that I developed. It's fascinating because people who build an audience on, on a smaller level, that's when the big boys call, when they see that you have an audience. You know, people are out there performing on stage, on in front of orchestras, and an opera, and whatever else. Why do they get booked? They get booked because management knows they can bring an audience. I know I've I, I've been on both sides of the of the fence there, and and somebody who has fans always gets chosen over somebody who doesn't. Regardless of quality, it, the number of competition, and I'm talking major world international competitions, who call me up and say, Stephen, I need help with my career. It's not going anywhere. I'm like, dude, really? Come on. You've just had three years of agent and all this kind of stuff, and, and it's just no way. Because they don't know how to connect and build with an audience, and therefore no one's booking them. So we did talk a little bit about time and how it's a limited resource.
0: Um, So there only are so many opportunities to play gigs in a year. How do we deal with the scalability of music and and sort of reaching the limit of what you as one person can do?
1: Do you just raise your rates to make more money in the future? Or how do you handle that? I I think you actually do repeat the program. Um, You present it to as many different people as possible. If you think about the church service model, You know, a lot of churches that are growing and big, they repeat services. They may have two, three, four, or even five services over a weekend. It's exactly the same service, repeated five times for five different congregations. So take that model and do the same thing. Repeat the same program, but for different people. Yeah, and I guess guess you could increase the venue size
0: too. So we we think small, like, oh, I'm going to play at my local uh, bar, but you don't realize that as you get bigger, there's a reason rock bands play in stadiums.
1: Yeah, but they all started out playing in small venues. Every single one of them.
0: You know, I hate to bring up Radiohead again. It's just on mine. But um, when I was there in Montreal watching the show this summer, they said a funny thing. They said, you know, we actually were here 20 years ago when Nirvana was playing in this building and we were playing at the local bar. And then they said, we're going to play a song we played that night. And they played one of their songs. It was much older. But it was weird to think about the fact that they were at one point just a small touring band playing in a pub in Montreal. <laughs>
1: And and we all get starstruck, you know, I was starstruck when I was a kid when I met a, a soloist and I was just, we, we were brought together, I went round to her house many times, we all, always ended up in the basement playing the instruments, um, you know, but I was so starstruck that there was that distance, there was that barrier. And, and I hadn't seen anyone in my life grow from being a regular person into someone who is kind of revered. You know, the, the, the way the classical music industry or the music industry in whole operates, we do revere people. We put them on a pedestal, we make them into more than they are. And, and that's okay because it helps sell records and that's what record companies exist for. Um, so we get starstruck. And when you do realize that they're all still people, and of course there are exceptions, there are those whose, you know, the ego gets to them and all that kind of stuff, but the vast majority of these people really are just regular Joes who started out in a pub down the street from where they're performing now. It's so true,
0: and I think one of the important things about being a musician who's looking for a performance career is to to not get starstruck as you look at people and try and reverse engineer and look at their career as a whole. Um, very few people are an overnight success. I just want to invite you to share anything about your Concert University program or any other financial advice you feel like we didn't have the chance to touch on here on the podcast.
1: You know, there there is a big difference between being a perfectionist in the craft of playing or singing music and communicating this thing that we call music this language of emotions. There is so much more to music than just the music, and if you open your eyes to that, um, and your ears and your heart, then you will actually end up with more fans who are willing to pay you more. It is a natural thing, it happens all the time. In Constant University, what we did was we created a system. Because I spent so many years and so much of my own money and time and energy and effort trying to figure out how to survive as a performer, I created a system which which is replicable. You can do it as much or as little as you want. Um, so if you are serious and you can play, you've got to be a, a good player. I don't work with just anyone who picked up the guitar last week. You know, it's not going to work for them. But it is a system. If you want to learn something that's routine, that you can implement, that you, that makes life easier for you but gets you gigs and gets you paid, then that's basically what the Concert University is about. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today,
0: Stephen, and I do want to encourage uh, listeners to check out your webinar and uh, your Concert University program. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we part ways?
1: No, I'm, I'm just really pleased that, that you're out doing this podcast to make the world a better place for everyone, and the fact that it's focused mostly on clarinets, but on other stuff as well is just awesome. So thank you, Sean. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Clarinet Podcast. Show notes for this and all other episodes can be found at clarinete.com. While you're there, don't forget to join our email newsletter for free updates, exclusive offers, and a chance to win giveaways. Guest requests, listener feedback, and comments can be sent to feedback at Special thank you to our season sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Don't forget to check out their new show, Don't Blow It, on Instagram, and also try a box of their new reserve clarinet reads next time you're at the music store. The show is also brought to you by Chamber Music Northwest. With over $20,000 in prizes and world-class guest artists and vendors, their upcoming clarinet celebration and competition is an event that you don't want to miss. Learn more at cmnw.org. Clarinet is made possible by listeners just like you. You can support the ongoing production of this independently produced program by donating to our Patreon at clarinet.com support. Supporters get early access to extended ad-free regular podcasts and exclusive access to patron-only episodes and live events. This program was produced and hosted by me, Sean Perrin, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Music performed by Michael Lowenstern. Debate episodes co-hosted by Andrew Morrow. Audio editing by Brian Chapels, And copy editing by Megan Taylor. That's all for now. Be sure to tune in next time for more of what's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry, on the Clarinet Podcast.